Our scripture comes from Exodus chapter 12, verses 33 to 42. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall be all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked Egypt, the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared for any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this is the same night, for this same night is a night of watching kept to, to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. May the Lord bless the reading of his word today. You may be seated. You will allow me to take us one more time and in, in to the Lord in prayer before we move to the preaching of the word. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we now ask that you would take the, the words from your very scripture, that you would enlighten our minds, that we might understand that which is being taught. Father, we ask that you would enlighten it so that the, our hearts are able to receive it in a way that we apply it in our lives, that we are made holy that you do the work of changing us in our hearts and it manifests itself in obedience and righteousness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's message is titled, God's Impossible Feats of Salvation. And to get us thinking on this topic, let me ask you a question. If you've ever seen a magician perform a disappearing act, whether that act is by way of making an, a, a coin or some type of an object disappear, or even a human disappear from the stage if you've been to one of the, the shows that have it in that format. And if you have, think back on your, on your feelings as you watch this take place. You know that you're watching something that says, this isn't reality. This didn't just happen. It appears that this person has made this disappear, but I know the reality of this is sleight of hand. This is smoke and mirrors. This is a magical trick. It's not actually reality. In fact, some, I, I remember a show not too long ago where David, well, I guess it's been over a decade, so it is a little while ago, David Copperfield did a, 
a show one night where he actually revealed how he did some of the stunts that he did. And I found it fascinating because it, was, it intrigued me that I couldn't figure out some of the, the, the magic, although it's just trickery, uh, that he had used, the sleight of hands. And so it's fascinating to look at that and go, I know that's not reality. Even though I can't figure it out, I know that's not reality. Well, what's interesting, today we're going to see God's impossible feats. When we hear of these feats, we're tempted to say that's impossible, and yet we know that that is reality. And we're trying to get our heads around how did he make all those moving parts happen at that time? How did he get those people to do what they absolutely did not want to do all the way through our narrative up till this point? And we just stand in awe and amazement of God because unlike the magician who we know is false, God has the integrity of righteousness. That which he has performed is reality, though it is a reality that is done by way of divine interaction into our physical world. And so take your bulletins, and if you'll turn with me to the back where the the sermon outline is, I do want to lay it out a little bit for us. First, the takeaway at the top is you can know for certain that if you are a believer in salvation offered by God, he has already secured your salvation and, and we're going to focus on this today, endowed you with the greatest of possessions. And three of the possessions are outlined here, and they are from a disposition of bondage to a disposition of favor. You're seeing the contrast from an oppressed people to a victorious army. And I'm going to point out today that in the Hebrew, there's a lot of military wording going on in the background that does not come out in the English. And then the last point of an impossible feat that takes place is you see a people move from a cry of rescue to a night of watchful. Watchfulness, you might say. A night of watching by our Savior. So one is, where is he? And the contrast is, oh, he's there watching over salvation and and allowing the the great possessions to take place. But there's two that are not listed on here, and I'm going to challenge you to listen for them. They're in the first bullet point. I will make it clear, but I want to give you a little bit of a hook to to listen through to this on on what are these, these other two points, these other two possessions as a form of a gift a gift of grace are possessions that each one of us as Christians need to hold on to dearly. That reality helps us center ourselves in the midst of a storm. So one other thing I might point out, I like when it's, uh, anything is moving in the Bible, when we're moving through geography, I like maps. So you guys got a map on the backside of your insert. And you'll see the word, uh, let's see, succoth. And that's actually not the Succoth that we know from Israel. This is a, a uh, we believe it is actually a, a transliteration of a word for the city that was a, a city um, uh, just outside. It's, it's still in the purview of Egypt, but just across the way there, if you see the, the Nile River that's coming down there. So just to give you an idea, on this particular map, it's a little bit different on the, the, the uh, journey. Oh, my goodness. There are so many versions of the possible journey, of the Exodus journey. I just picked one of them. So don't, if you're offended by uh, that's not the way I believe they went, don't be. The key is just to find Succoth and have an idea of where they're coming from on this. Okay. 
With that in mind, let us get started. If you will do me a favor, we need to turn to, so you can get a little foundation, just turn to Genesis 15, 13 to 14, Genesis 15, 13 to 14, because what is happening today is the fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham when God covenanted with him. So God covenanted with and said, this is what's going to take place. And now today in Exodus, it's taking place. So let's see what God has said. And again, if you're new with us, anytime you see the word Lord all in caps, we're going to use the Hebrew word, which is Yahweh. So if you hear me saying that, you're like, hey, that's not my Bible. That's what you know what's going on then. So Genesis 15, 13 to 14 says this. Then Yahweh said to Abram, this is early on, his name hasn't been changed by God, to Abraham. Know for certain, you recognize that that is in our takeaway today, you can know for certain. Know for certain that your offspring will, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there. Let's see what kind of servants they are. They are very afflicted, therefore they are enslaved types of servants. And they will be inflicted for 400 years, but I, and I is emphasized in this, in this particular reading in Hebrew, I will bring judgment, which we have seen by way of the plagues, on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out. That's our, our, our word for exodus, yatsah. We keep saying that, yatsah. I want to make sure you're, you're seeing that all of this is based on a great exodus. And so... This, this word come out here, they shall come out, this yatsah, is actually a, not only a geographic statement, it's, it's a relational statement. They shall experience deliverance or salvation in this coming out. They are leaving and coming out of their bondage to Egypt. Let me continue on. But I will, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Well, today we'll see the, the possessions that are these great possessions spoken of here. Everything happens in our account today, is, everything that does happen is a fulfillment of what we just read here. So our question then is, for our own application, as you're listening to this, this sermon preached, what is our application? We know that Christ is the center of the Bible and it all points to Christ. But in addition to that, there is application in all of the Bible for us. Not necessarily a one-for-one one sometimes, but you take principled application. So we need to understand this and not read this simply as a history story. We need to understand this and, re and realize there is something that God can communicate, that God wants to communicate, that God intended when he wrote this to communicate to all generations of all time, not just the ones going through this. So listen carefully, and let's go through this together. Let's take this journey and see what is the, for application for us. So the first impossible feat here that we uh, mentioned before was from a disposition of bondage, and here's the contrast, to a disposition of favor. And I'm going to read through verses 33 and 36 again, all the way through those. Okay, so the Egyptians, in other words, the defeated foe, were urgent. We read the word urgent, that's the way that it's translated, and we, we, there's no way for us to know unless we know Hebrew. That's the same word, chazak. And that word was just used by God in his inspiration to Moses, who's writing this. Every time it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he chazaked Pharaoh's heart. And now we see that same word being used to describe 
urgency. And just like in our language, words have a range of meaning based on the context. So if you are used to seeing that used in the context of hardness of heart that God brought upon uh, Pharaoh as a means of judgment upon him, making sure that all ten plagues are carried out, then you, you are, as a Hebrew, inclined to go, oh, then I take that same understanding of God being behind its use now. That is carried forward because of the context. So, in other words, the Egyptians were urgent. They were made urgent by God, is the takeaway and the use of that same word by divinely inspired by God uh, uh, through Moses' use. So with that, the Egyptians were urgent and the, uh, with the people to send them out. That, I, that idea to send them out was, is that, that idea to uh, move them on, get them out of the country. It's interesting to, to note that the Egyptians who were once resolute, they were chazach with their pharaoh, that they would not release the Israelites. The Egyptians are now chazach. They are resolute. They want to get rid of. They want to grant freedom because we're going to find out their freedom, they believe, means the freedom of the Israelites means their own lives are spared. So we see that wanting to be carried out, and we sit there, and we're, we should be amazed by how God is the God who's able to change the heart and, and to just flip it and allow that, this a whole different change of direction, a, a turning of the tables. And what's interesting, the word send them out is actually one word, and we continue to see it in the, in the Hebrew. We either see shalach, which is the long, hey, bye, don't want to ever want to see you again, or chalach, which is, oh, I expect you to come back. Pharaoh keeps using the word halak. The Egyptian people are like, see ya, don't ever want to be ya, be around you. It is shalach. That's what God has told him that, that Pharaoh should do from the beginning. His people have said, we're done, Pharaoh. We want them gone. And it carries on, and it says in the, that they were with the people to send them out of the land in haste. There's so much going on in the Hebrew here. The idea of in haste is the idea of they are aggressively shepherding them out of their land. You need to go because we are going to die. Have you ever tried to shepherd a child, a little toddler? I didn't see Hannah, but I can see PJ here. I saw Hannah and PJ trying to shepherd during the... the uh, um, Sunday school today, trying to keep the, the little one in, in her lane, so to speak. Um, and so, have you, this is the picture there. The, the Egyptians are aggressively shepherding. They're acting as God's shepherds to get the people out of the land, God's people. It's interesting because he uses an evil people who he is bringing punishment to, to shepherd his people to salvation. Do we not serve an amazing God. The very people that want to keep them are the ones shepherding them according to God's will. And they said, for they said, we shall all be dead. In other words, if these people don't live, we're dead men walking. And we don't want to be dead men walking. We, we've seen the power of Yahweh. He can take a life that fast. So the people took the dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks, 
on their shoulders. The idea is what was just described is the using many words to describe a different people and a different action. We opened this paragraph with the Egyptians having a form of urgency to get rid of the people. Now we're told at the very end of this paragraph, this rightly paragraph break here, that the Israelites are also in a form of urgency. They quickly put over their shoulders, they, they bound it to their cloaks, and they are going to flee quickly at God's, by way of God's direction to leave the land for freedom. We have two forms of urgency. One is an urgency wanting to live, and the other is the urgency to seek freedom. Do you see the contrast with us and the world in that? We as Christians have been taken out of that urgency of what, what happens to me? Am I going to die? What, when, or excuse me, when I die, where do I go? What, what, where is my destiny? I don't know what God's going to do to the, I know the freedom that God has, has provided for me through the perfect life of the only sacrifice, the only worthy sacrifice, his son, that has brought freedom. And so we see this being lived out here and this juxtaposing that Moses is doing here. And we continue on in our reading. It says this in, in verse 35, and, and he shifts. He started off the verse uh, 33 with the Egyptians, and now he, he's looking and he's focusing on the people of Israel. These are the victorious benefit, beneficiaries of God's grace. He, he says this, The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, gold jewelry, and for the clothing. The jewelry there in your Bibles, it says jewelry. The, the Hebrew word we've talked about before when it was prophesied that, that God would make this happen, it does not mean exclusively jewelry. It means items or utensils is another way. So they are taking a lot of silver and gold from the Egyptians by way of the Egyptians giving it to them. We'll see that in a moment. But there's something on that word uh, asked in, in uh, your Bibles. The word asked is right. It's the right word. But it's interesting. That word has a range of meaning like all words that we talked about. It can mean anywhere from asked to demand. Well, they're not demanding. They're asking. But if you were in their place, if you had experienced their God and the judgment their God has doing, that would certainly sound and be received like a demand. They ask, oh, you want it? You got it. That's the change of the heart that is going on by way of Yahweh. They hear one thing, excuse me, that one thing is communicated. Oftentimes we see this disastrous in, in, marriage, in marriages where one spouse will hear it. One will say it and the other one will hear it differently, wrongly. And we have this, this conflict in a marriage. Well, this is perfect. This is actually the right way. He says, ask, they hear demand because of how great Yahweh is. There's no way they're not going to give them their possessions, their great possessions of gold and silver. And we continue on in verse 36. And Yahweh, in other words, he is the great grantor of favor, had given the people favor. And oh, Moses, through the inspiration of God, that word favor is chen. It's grace. We're going to see that God is starting to unfold more and more in the story through the Exodus, his grace upon the people. 
It's God's act of giving that which is undeserved. There's nothing that they have done to deserve this, but God gives it. In fact, right here we see, and Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they, and we hear the, the military word here, they plundered the Egyptians. The, the ESV or your translation, most of the translations have the word plundered there. That is the right word. It is a military word. It's designed to pull in military understandings, thoughts in, in the uh, Israelites' heads of, uh, the, of later generations reading this and understanding. Oh, interesting. There's a military component here. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. In other words, they took the spoils of war from their defeated enemy. But this, this defeated enemy was not defeated by themselves. This defeated enemy was exclusively defeated by God. Our enemy, Satan, the one who would have our souls, is defeated exclusively by the work of Christ on the, on the cross. It is grace that we receive from God the Father through the act of what his Son has done. It, it is the, a picture of God has confronted Pharaoh, who represents Satan with his serpent uh, uh, figurine figure on the front of his headdress, his royal headdress. It would have been made in gold, and it would sit there whenever he would have court. This one who so clearly represents the greatest evil on earth, the superpower and the head of the superpower, he, God, has defeated him exclusively. Thus we should understand when Christ comes on scene, what, one of the components of Christ's salvation is the defeat of that who would, is the enemy of our souls. But there's, there's irony going on with the plundering that we don't understand that I'll be frank with you that I didn't know until I studied this week and it's really cool. It's neat to see these little things unfolding. You go, man, God, you are, if I dig a little deeper, I am get, I get more and more amazed at, at what you're doing. You see, this is springtime when the exodus takes place. In springtime, the Egyptians send out their military by way of messengers, their armies to the vassal nations, the nations that they that have agreed to submit to them without a fight, and they have allowed them to carry on as a nation, but they must give tribute. If they fail to give tribute, the Egyptians will bring the armies and will defeat them and enslave them. What we have is a reversal. It's the Egyptians by way of the plundering that are giving tribute to Yahweh and recognizing their submission to the all-sovereign God. They were the superpower that has been humbled by Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. What an incredible picture. They give tribute to the all-powerful Yahweh, not their God. Their God, the Pharaoh, who is, is God incarnate of Ra, who they, don't, they can't see, so similar to what our beliefs are. And they, it, it's amazing how all of the pagan religions take a bit of truth and warp it. This, this Pharaoh is nothing 
And yet we know, we've been studying, that who is the, the one that is engaging the, the Israelites? Who is the, the person of the Trinity engaging the Israelites that we saw at the burning bush? The angel of Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity, is the one doing the engaging, is the one bringing the, the plagues, is the one that is defeating Satan. Should not be surprised by that by the time the New Testament rolls around in what Jesus does through his perfect life and his death on the cross. It is the second person of the Trinity that defeats the, the enemy of our souls. What a, what a powerful picture here. They pay tribute to him back in the Old Testament as all the world pays tribute to him eventually at the judgment seat. The big picture here is that the Israelites were previously under the yoke of bondage, but now due to Yahweh's favor, his grace, the tables are completely turned around. There, the, we're seeing two contrasting realities. When we opened the book, we had certain people that were afflictors, and we had certain people that were afflicted. We had the Egyptians were the afflicted, excuse me, the afflictors, and we had the Israelites as the afflicted. It has been turned now by Yahweh. It is the Egyptians that have been afflicted by God by way of judgment, by way of the plagues. It is the Israelites that are no longer afflicted and are walking away free, as free men and women. We had the sufferers and those that were causing the suffering. It's all been reversed. Take a look at, I'm going to ask you to turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. This is Paul writing to the church at Galatia. Paul, who, who even himself, in a moment of you might say lunacy. He's, he says, I, I'm mad, trying to explain to you how worthless all the titles are. And in his list of all the great titles that men chase after, he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisee. I count it all as dung. I call it all as, count it all as loss, he says at one point. But in that diatribe, in that expression of worthlessness, here's a list of worthless titles that mean nothing compared to having Christ Jesus. He lists that he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is a man that would have had memorized the first five books of the, of the Torah. I think how hard it is for me sometimes to remember a single word, let alone memorize five books, the first five books of the, of the Bible. This is the sharpness of the mind, of the theology of this man. And he writes this in Galatians 4, 3 through 7. You can't help but see back to where we are in our account today. In the same way, we also, when we were children, another prior to our salvation, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In other words, the kingdom of darkness, sin, and death. In verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman. That's why we refer to him as the God-man. Fully human, fully God. Born of a woman, born under the law. Born under the requirements of the law of perfect righteousness. That's the law that he, was born, that he was born under. It's the same law that Adam and Eve were born under. It's the same law that we were born under that no human had been able to keep. He, as the God-man, did keep it. And it continues on. To redeem those who were under the law. A word in front of the word, uh, the word that might be helpful if we parked it in front of the word law there, under the curse of the law. We all have failed to keep the law. We now, unless we accept what Christ has done, in meeting the debt we owe by way of his death on a cross, 
We all are recipients of the curse, and we feel the weight of the curse. We're all damned to hell unless we recognize Christ as our Savior. So we continue on. And it says this again in verse 5 of Galatians 4. So that we might receive, and here's one of the two we talked about. These are the biggies for us as, as Christians. We might receive adoptions, the adoption as sons, and that you could very well have sons, and we have women in here, and daughters. Adoption. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. This is an identity statement. When you understand where the context of what Paul is looking back to, and it'll continue to, to bear itself out as we get into the next verses, you realize he's talking, he's using the language about the, the salvation that, or deliverance that the Israelites experienced at the hand of God by way of the Exodus. Well, what is the Exodus? You have to do another jump, another hyperlink. The Exodus is bearing out the, the difference, the distinct difference of what, what happened or what was what happened in the garden and what was prophesied in the garden. When Adam and Eve fell, it was prophesied that there would come a day that there would be this Savior, the seed of a woman that would crush the head of Satan. That, that seed, that battle is in the minds of the Israelites. It should be in our minds. As we as Christians read the Old Testament, you move forward to the Exodus. You get to the Exodus, and it's a playing out on a grand scale, a, a cosmic stage as well as the, the ultimate stage in, in earth or on earth at that time because it's a superpower. Pharaoh, as we talked about before, represents the seed of Satan. He is the human incarnation of that. He represents, in some sense, really, the reality of Satan himself. And you see the war is played out on that stage. And you see the defeat of the devil by the second person of the Trinity, Christ Jesus, who is identified in the Old Testament at, at this stage as the angel of Yahweh. So when we get here and we see that we might receive adoptions as sons, this is an identity statement because we are now brothers to Christ, the Satan-crushing Savior, the skull-crushing Savior that crushed the skull of Satan. This is the identity that we need to have as Christians. We have to stop thinking adoption merely means something passive and we remain passive. No, we have been adopted into the family of God with the understanding that Christ Jesus has accomplished something for us and we are to continue on this mentality that we are the Satan-crushing people of God, if I could say it that way. Let me, let me bear this out a little bit further. And because you are sons, God has spent, excuse me, has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Well, that's, that's, and then it says, crying, Abba, Father. Who's crying? Is it the Holy Spirit that's crying? Is it our spirit that's crying out? I'm glad you asked, because that's confusing the way it's written. Let me help you re read it to more of a, if I can exegete it out a little bit. It would say this, and because uh, you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. In other words, the Holy Spirit testifies and confirms with your spirit, with my spirit, that is who I really am beyond this physical body that I have. I know the real me inside of me. He, he testifies, this Holy Spirit testifies and uh, affirms and confirms 
that I have taken the step by way of God's grace upon me. I have a heart that's regenerate. I have a faith that is given to me. Given to me. I have, another way of saying a faith, I have been given the ability to trust God. And I have stepped out and said, Jesus Christ is my only means of salvation. He is my only Savior. And the Holy Spirit is now testifying and affirming with our spirits, and we cry out. It is our spirit that cries out in unison with the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father. That is our identity. We hold on to that, that we are possessors of that. We are children of the King. What an incredible possession. And not only that as a possession, but think about this. In verse 7, it continues on. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And what have we become heirs of? What have we possessed by way of what Jesus Christ has done? But the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. So by way of gift, we have the sonship. We have sonship with the Savior, and I would say daughtership as well, to not exclude out the women here. That is just as equally understood. But in addition to that, we have the, the gift, the possession of the gift of the Holy Spirit now indwelling us. As you move forward in your salvation, you do not move forward as passive. You move forward in, in, with a mindset of victory. And we're going to see this continue to be bared out because you have with you the very presence of the mighty God of our salvation. Let's continue on. Impossible feat number two. From an oppressed people to a victorious people. Verses 37 to 39. In in verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses. And that's a gathering point. Even it's kind of helpful because the the picture that I provided in the insert gives the idea that everything's coming together. and, And that city would be just on the other side. You can see where it says on the handout, it says Ramses II. That's about where the city, where that wording is on your handout, that little itty bitty font. That's about where the city of Ramses would have been. The unique thing of uh, identifying Ramses here as the gathering point, that's the city that the enslaved Jews built up. That is the fruit of their labor as slaves. Now they stand by that city, probably not in it, but in the context of proximity of it, as freed from that. I built that when I was a slave, and I'm saying goodbye to it. That's my past. I'm leaving it behind. What a beautiful physical gift of the eyes that God gives them to say, there goes your past. That's never to be you again. You are not enslaved. And we need to remember that in our sanctification. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We are victors in and through it. When I say through it, I mean by way of the power to get through it. Let's continue on. And, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. About 600,000 men on foot, is, it says. Interesting. Men on foot is a Hebrew word for foot soldier. These are the fighting men of fighting age of the, of the people of Israel that are being counted here. It's also to, to get us thinking, get the Israelites thinking that the later generations, wow, this is not what I thought. This isn't a, a broken down, beat people. This is falling in line in regiments by tribe and marching out in victory by way of what God has done for them. 
They are with the foot soldiers being counted. And, and the, the idea is that this is a, not a beaten people, but a powerful people made powerful by God himself, their God. It continues on, besides women and children. And then it says a, in verse 38, a mixed multitude. You know, I went back and forth on this, and it really doesn't focus here. It could mean and include the Egyptians, but it doesn't actually focus. The mixed multitude focuses on non-Jews, non-Israelite people that were also enslaved into labor. They're letting them all go. Meaning that if they want to go with them, they'll let them go with them. They're not going to stop them. And you see that the non-Jews, the non-Israelites receive salvation just as, it's physical salvation, just as the Israelites did. The physical salvation points to the spiritual salvation we have in Christ Jesus. Praise be to God that these others, these non-Jews, are part of the salvation. Or you and I, I don't know about how many, some of you might have Jewish backgrounds that I don't know about. But most of you, as far as I know, don't have a Jewish background. We would be outside if God wasn't so gracious to allow others, mixed multitudes, us, to be a part of the people of God. To, to be counted in as sons and daughters of our God. It continues on. And also went up with them, that's the mix of multitude, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought, that they had brought out. In other words, there's our yatzah, uh, uh, um, there's our exodus verb, out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out. I wish that the, the translators of the ESV didn't translate that thrust out. Because if they, would have, if they would have translated it the way they used it in Exodus 6.1 and in Exodus 11.1, it would have read, and they were driven out. Because God prophesied that the people of Egypt would drive them out. How ridiculous that must have sounded to the enslaved Egyptians, enslaved by the most powerful nation on the earth. Yeah, right. They're going to drive us out. Yeah. They're going to drive you out, and they're going to actually be the ones that shepherd you out the door and make sure you go. That's how amazing our God is. It continues. Well, let's look at the, the explanation here after we, we finish here. Because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor, ha, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So in the explanation, we see the Israelites are no longer an oppressed people and a beaten down people. They are being driven out by the Egyptians as God had told them that, w- that would happen, but they are going out as a victorious army. And we're going to see that in some more wording that we're going to see set forward. So we have a little application here, and then we've talked a little bit about it because I sometimes get ahead of myself. The mentality of the victor. We need to hold on to that. Sin, evil, comes outside of us towards us. If we take a position of passivity, if we take a position of, oh no, what do I do now? We are already behind. We are already outside of the mindset that God has shown us as an example of salvation. We march into the world preparing for the wilderness battles. That's what the Israelites are doing here. They've been told, I'm going to bring you to, through the wilderness, to the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is the promised land. And he has told them they will, they will be They will go to war and they will remove the peoples from those lands and he will give them those lands that are garden-like lands. 
But they have to have that mentality of, I'm going out into the wilderness knowing that I will face wilderness enemies. We need to engage life knowing we are going to face wilderness enemies. And sometimes, ladies, you can appreciate with this with the women's Bible study, it's the enemy that's within. That's the greatest enemy. Our own pride, our own selfish, our own self-focus becomes the biggest challenge. Well, we continue on with feet, impossible feet number three. From a cry for rescue to a night of watching. Exodus 12:40 starts this way. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years on that very day, a, a, a day of precision, God has counted our days. God knows exactly how long we'll live because God is the one who is sovereign over that. God is saying here, I am sovereign over salvation. To the very day it is happening as I had said it would. And it says this, at the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of Yahweh. Oh, that's a phrase that the, all the Israelites would know. You see, the hosts of Yahweh, and some of you have this in your Bibles, depending if you have the NASB, or I think the NIV has it as well. It says it'll refer to the hosts of Yahweh rather than calling that. It will refer to the regiments, the divisions, or the armies of Yahweh. Again, affirming this is how the people are going out as the army of Yahweh prepared for battle. All the hosts of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. And in verse 42, our final verse here, it was a night of watching by Yahweh. Now that's the noun. The watching is the noun that's derived from the verb. I'm going to get a little uh, geeky with you on this, but the verb means to watch over, to observe, to keep, to guard. This is, the God, this is what our God is doing. He is watching over. He is keeping. He is guarding the way of the Israelites out of the land. Yes, the Egyptians are shepherding them out. But if one turns, if one says, yeah, maybe, maybe this isn't the way I want it to happen, think Pharaoh in the next chapter. It is God that is watching over and guarding their deliverance. And such is the case with us. God is watching over our sanctification. You are not facing an enemy that God didn't see coming. You are facing an enemy that God has ordained in your life. You are facing a difficult situation that God has ordained. Even if you were the cause of it by way of sin, God is going to humble you potentially, to bring you, if it's sin, to bring you to a place where you are now ready to say, I am wrong. I need you. I have ventured out in my own power and in my own strength, and I cannot do this. I am now ready to return to a a mind frame of, I need you. You are my Savior. You are the one that watches over and guides me. I don't want the pain and the suffering that my own sin has caused. And if it's not your sin that's brought you, you can know that the enemy you face, the enemy you face cannot deny you a relationship of sonship, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the eternal destiny of your soul in heaven with your God. He can take your life. He cannot deny those things. Listen to one of those, those things. Your identity is set in stone. 
you can never be identified as someone else, as part of the kingdom of darkness again. Hold on to that in the midst of the darkness that you're facing. Be reminded of of our mindset we need to hold on to. Remember that ultimately it is Yahweh who is the protector of our soul. Let us leave with our takeaway. Never forget, church, you can know for certain that if you are a believer in the salvation offered by God, he has already secured your salvation and endowed you with the greatest of possessions, sonship and the powerful presence of his Holy Spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Holy Father, you are an amazing God. You reveal to us in the Old Testament so much of what we need to be reminded as Christians who move about in the New Testament, in the covenant of grace. We thank you for these pictures that form in our minds that allow us to grasp this deeper than just words. We understand the mindset, the mentality. We understand the dependence upon you in new and fresh ways. We see ourselves together as an army. We stop thinking of ourselves as individualistic expressions of our of self that the American, that the Western world wants to say is, this is what our culture is. And we start being reminded that we are the church. We are the, the divisions, the regiments, the armies that go out into the world and bring the kingdom of light unto the kingdom of darkness. And we bring it forth and your Holy Spirit does the work of regeneration. Your Holy Spirit makes it possible that the work of Christ is affected upon the hearts of those that we share the gospel with that that are of your choosing to, to do it in that time and that place. And we say thank you that you are our God who is the protector of our souls that is the one who brings about salvation to all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.